Navigating the travel world doesn't have to be complicated. Whether you want to hack your points and miles, figure out where to travel next, or you just need advice on an ethical dilemma. I'm Aislinn Green, host of Unpacked by Afar. And in the brand new season, we are unpacking the most captivating and challenging topics in the travel industry, one conversation at a time. Topics like the sexiness of travel insurance and the perils of quote-unquote bad tourism, and even the secrets to flying with children and not losing your mind in the process. Listen to Unpacked by Afar wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is The Secret Life of Canada, a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. Did you ever have to really decide? Do what you want to do. Be what you really want to be. And find yourself at West Edmonton. Ooh, I love it. If listeners could see, we've got choreographed dancing in the mall, headbands. Everyone looks so happy. It takes me back to that time when when I too was in the mall doing choreographed dancing. <laughs> as you may have guessed, Leah, and as listeners may have guessed, we are headed to the mall today. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. I'm ready. Researching this one, it was a real walk down memory lane, and it gave me a lot of emotions. I felt nostalgic, sad, I laughed. But more than anything, it made me miss the malls of my youth. When I was younger, these spaces often felt so vibrant and so fun. I could spend a whole day there. But now when I find myself in the mall, it feels just kind of sad. And I know they've changed, but I can't really tell you what's changed. So today, I wanted to look at some history about malls and the decline of malls, or as they're often known, dead malls. Huh. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and the technical definition of a dead mall is a mall that has a high vacancy rate. Um, You know, they may have once had a retail heyday in some cases. Um, You know, in other cases, there were no stores there. Um, And sometimes no one ever came at all. So they they started out dead and just continued Mm -hmm. to to have a decline, I guess. Okay. Depressing, but interesting. Yeah. And there's been a lot of work around dead malls in the U.S., but I found less here in Canada. Um, And I think that has to do with just the sheer numbers of malls in Canada compared to the U.S. So there are way more malls in the States just in terms of servicing a bigger population, right? Mm -hmm. Which means more dead malls. Mm -hmm. Is die the right word or perish? I'm Um, not really sure what the the language is here. Yeah, I'm not sure on the grammar either, but I think die works. But before we can go to the dying of malls, let's go back and look at how they came to be. Let's go shopping. Shopping can be fun at this modern and convenient shopping center. The mall was the invention of Victor Gruen, a Jewish architect from Vienna who fled the Nazis during World War II. One of his friends dressed as a Nazi stormtrooper and drove Gruen and his wife to the airport so they could escape. Gruen landed in New York in the late 30s with $8 and speaking little to no English. Once there, he helped to form the Refugee Artists Group, a group of artists and intellectuals. They even put on a play that ended up on Broadway. Very cool. Malls and Broadway, like two of my favorite things. Wonderful. He is such a fascinating character. I honestly, everybody should just like go and take a look into his life because it's wild. He crossed paths with so many interesting 
people. So he's in New York. He starts this artist group. But soon, you know, he he resumes his work as an architect. And, you know, he began to work on this project that would dramatically change the way people shopped. The mall. Now it is worth mentioning that the mall we are going to be talking about today is the enclosed mall. When I started working on this episode, I had no idea that there were so many different kinds of malls. Enclosed malls are different from, say, a marketplace, a shopping center, or a mega mall, which is just a giant mall, like the West Edmonton Mall. Ah, yes, West Edmonton Mall, or West Ed, as it is known to the locals. It's the second largest mall in North America, and it's where I spend the majority of my teens. Sadly, I've worked in every corner of that mall. I know it well. I would I would have loved to have seen that. Sure. Um, but for today, yes, we are going to focus on the Suburban Mall. And of course, there have been shopping spaces for a very long time, you know, ancient marketplaces mm-hmm. and spaces like that. Yes. And so enclosed malls are sort of inward facing. They have a fairly plain outside uh, with access through a few doors. Basically, they are designed to make you come in to see, you know, what's happening on the inside, where the action is, to see the stores. Not much on the outside, everything on the inside. Gotcha. And these malls have what were known as anchor stores, stores like Kmart, Eaton, Sears, Zellers, Woolco. Yeah, and all those stores are done, which is wild. They don't even exist anymore. Oh, we are going to get to that. But first, back to Victor Gruen. In post-World War II America, Gruen witnessed the baby boom, uh, the growth of the suburbs, and the rise of automobile ownership. More and more highways were being built to accommodate all these new cars, and people were making babies and driving all over, and they needed places to go to live with their expanding families. So a lot of them moved out of urban centers and out of the downtown core and headed to the suburbs. This was all possible due to the economic boom of post-World War II North America. And so, you know, the suburbs were also seen as a place where people could have a fresh start. But for many, life outside an urban center was lonely and isolating. Many, especially women, didn't have anywhere to gather. No community, no communal spaces. Gruen wanted to come up with a solution, and he thought back to the plazas of Europe where he grew up. He decided he would design something and base his creation on the idea of those plazas, of those gathering spaces. So when he was building these and conceiving of them, what was his plan? Gruen conceived of a space that would have two levels and two large anchor stores at each end of the mall. Right. Anchor stores being those big retail stores you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. And anchor stores, what they would do is they would draw people into the mall and then they would go to other stores in the mall. Smaller stores would benefit from the draw, essentially. And in the center of the mall, there would be sort of a town square with a skylight, uh, you know, a garden, trees, a pond with fish sometimes, even a cage with birds. Um, And it would kind of bring the outside world inside, you know. And, of course, outside there would be a parking lot that would hold all of the new cars that I mentioned, you know, sometimes up to 5,000 of them. Yeah, that sounds a lot like West Ed. I mean, or really any other mall, for that matter. It's like yeah. industrialized parking lots mm-hmm. and then a building in the center of that. A- and everyone fighting to, like, try and park as close as humanly possible <laughs> to the front doors for some reason. Yeah, God you know, forbid that, that, we like, walk mm-hmm. at all. Yes, God forbid. Yeah. yeah. Much of the time, malls were organized around the use of the car. So if you didn't have one, read lower income folks, then the mall wasn't for you. You were not the ideal consumer. 
1956, the Southdale Center in Minnesota opened at a cost of $20 million. 75,000 people attended the opening of America's first mall. In short, the mall was a massive success. The Southdale Center provided a prototype for most malls to come, and they came fast. By 1960, just four years after the opening of the Southdale Center, there were over 4,000 malls in America, and the phenomenon was about to head north to Canada. Now that we have heard about how the mall came to America, I want to look at malls in Canada because they are a bit different. And there seems to be some online debate around the first mall here. It's almost like every mall wants to be the first mall. So I read some conflicting reports. For our purposes today, we are going to call the first mall in Canada West Vancouver's Park Royal Shopping Centre, which opened in 1950. Hmm, I wouldn't have guessed Vancouver. Yeah, it was originally built as an open-air mall building, and it would be converted to an enclosed mall in 1962. Other open-air malls in Canada would follow suit. And why did the open-air malls become enclosed? Well, I mean, enclosed malls were meant to keep you in. You'd go in and kind of lose sense of time. And enclosed malls were desirable for a lot of people in Canada so that they could, you know, stay out of the cold. Right. Okay. And that makes sense. And watching some of those old commercials makes me realize that they really wanted people to stay in. You know, they would say things like, you don't want to be outside going from shop to shop. Come in out of the cold to a a Christmas Christmas wonderland. wonderland. Come into climate controlled North Bay Mall. The mall is decked out in all... And these malls, they were very much like the malls in the U.S., a place that you could easily spend your whole day. They followed the Victor Gruen style layout, large parking lots to accommodate a lot of cars, a central market square with plants, a skylight, a fountain, and of course, a couple of anchor stores. Think of stores like the Bay, Sears, Eaton's. And the growth of shopping centers in Canada, it's pretty astonishing. In 1951, there were only four shopping centers in Canada. By 1956, there were 64. And by 1971, there were 664. That's a lot of shopping. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. As more and more malls were opening in the suburbs to accommodate that growing population, downtowns began to fail. Mom-and-pop businesses shuttered, and so did downtown malls. Some plans were put into place to try and revitalize downtowns to make them more pedestrian-friendly, but these were often unsuccessful. And why was that? With the rise of the suburbs, you know, we saw more and more suburban malls, and with their rise, more and more downtowns began to fail with some cities desperately trying to reimagine what their downtowns could look like. And this makes me think a lot about a specific mall in downtown Brantford, near where I grew up, the Eaton's Market Square. When I was a kid, I remember downtown being pretty vibrant, Uh, even the mall. I even remember getting my picture taken on Santa's lap. But as I grew up, I watched the mall rapidly decline. The mall disappeared, the small pet store, the comic book shop, the record store, they all shuttered. But the story wasn't about how suburban malls were killing downtown. The story I heard was about a curse. Oh, let's go. I'm in. (laughs) Okay. Oh, there was a curse? Oh, there was a curse. There's a curse. Welcome to the rest of this episode. Okay, let me hear it. So what I heard, and there are different versions of this, um, is that where Eaton's Market Square is in Brantford, there used to be an old market. um, And there 
what I've heard is that there was some unfair and racist dealings that were going on when people from Six Nations, they would come to town to sell things. Um, you know, fees were placed on some people who were coming from the res to sell their wares. So like sort of like a, you know, I think like like a booth fee or something that you would find at like a powwow. Um and so some of our people took issue with this, um, and then a curse was put on the land, um, stating that it would never prosper with non-Indigenous people living on it. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> I love I'm that. Giving you, I'm giving you a real light version of it, but it's well documented. Um, I found some newspaper articles about it, actually, in the Brantford Expositor, so I, we can share those on social. Yeah, it's going to be there for everyone to check out. I love that story. Yeah. And dead malls and dead downtowns have often provided filming locations for many a zombie film. Brantford's downtown was the location for the zombie flick Silent Hill. And recently, the new zombie show Last of Us uh, filmed a scene in a dead mall in Calgary. Yeah, I just watched that episode. It was excellent. Mm -hmm. I love the repurposing mm -hmm. of it all. Yeah. And Brantford's downtown is doing better. But the last time I was there, the Market Square was still pretty empty. Okay, so the curse of Market Square is maybe still working. And so the downtowns are still suffering and malls in the suburbs are growing and taking over. Yeah, and the mall is about to enter its heyday, the 80s. Shopping should be pleasurable. Exciting animals, clowns and more displayed throughout the mall. Weekly prize draws, plus a chance to win an 87 Honda Accord. Shop, shop, shop. Navigating the travel world doesn't have to be complicated. Whether you want to hack your points and miles, figure out where to travel next, or you just need advice on an ethical dilemma. I'm Aislinn Green, host of Unpacked by Afar. And in the brand new season, we are unpacking the most captivating and challenging topics in the travel industry, one conversation at a time. Topics like the sexiness of travel insurance and the perils of quote unquote bad tourism, and even the secrets to flying with children and not losing your mind in the process. Listen to Unpacked by Afar wherever you get your podcasts. The 80s is often regarded as the height of the suburban mall. When I think mall, I can't help but think of the 80s. Teased out hair, acid washed jeans, day glow shirts, kids saying things like totally gnarly and <laughs> gag me with a spoon and I'm out of 5,000. And it's around this time that we see movies that feature the mall. Films like Fast Times at Ridgemont High or Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure starring a young Canadian soon-to-be superstar mm -hmm. Keanu Reeves. And of mm -hmm. course, Back to the Future, which famously begins in a mall parking lot. Or one of my personal faves, Terminator 2. But the glory days of the mall can't last forever. And in the 90s, a few things happened to push that decline forward. He's known for his generous spirit, for his good humor, and for his hearty laugh. But Santa Claus is a little less jolly this year. He seems to have fallen on some hard times. Santa is in making appearances at some shopping malls and some company Christmas parties. As Sasha Petrasik reports, St. Nick has been hurt by the recession. What's wrong with this picture? Sure, the halls are all decked with boughs of holly. 
the carols come at you from all sides. But St. Nick, he's nowhere, banished from the aisles of this department store. His day job canceled at this mall. His hours cut way back. Oh, cutting back Santa's hours. That's truly mm-hmm. sad. Mm-hmm. I know, and I don't know why this, when I found this, it just made me laugh so much. I'm, it's so dark. <laughs> I know it is funny, but it's terrible. Yeah. Okay, so the early 90s, you know, recession hits. Obviously, that's going to affect malls, which is weird to me, though, because honestly, I think of it as the height of malls. Yes, and I, I totally get that. Like, it it might have taken a while for someone to really see or feel that decline, but it was definitely starting to happen with that recession. But it wasn't just the recession. There were a few other factors involved here. Um, we also had the rise of the big box store, stores like Costco, Home Depot, and of course, the granddaddy of them all, Walmart. Um, and this type of store, it didn't follow that sort of Victor Grun model, right? It wasn't attached to a mall. They were standalones. These stores were often clustered together, sharing a central parking lot. You know, you went there to shop and you didn't go anywhere else. And this was often very deliberate. You know, sometimes these stores were attached to a mall to begin with, and then they would close off their mall doors so that the only way that you could get in was from the parking lot. Oh, another tactic to keep people in. I get it. Yeah, this contributed not just to the decline of the mall, but also the decline of those anchor stores like Zeller's, Eaton's, Wolco, Woolworth, Sears. And if I'm honest, I still mourn the loss of Zeller's. Oh, and you you, you, know? are, you are not alone in that. I found, a, I, I found a poll that the Toronto Star did in 2021 where people voted on their favorite nostalgic mall stores and Zeller's won. And all of this, you know, it makes me wonder, why does this make us sad? What is it about these spaces being gone that stirs up so many complicated feelings for us? Yeah, it's a it's a wonder. I mean, I know Zellers is really taking that nostalgia seriously. They recently announced a comeback of sorts. Mm -hmm. I don't know if uh, people know, but they're going to be opening in 25 locations inside the Bay stores. Mm -hmm. And in a media release, they even said that they wanted to offer a hint of the nostalgia that Canadians know and love. Yeah, and we covered some of that Zeller's history. If you need your Zeller's fix before you can get to one of those new stores, you can check out our episode from Season 3. But the nostalgia doesn't just stop with Zeller's. I looked around online and I was shocked to see that you can buy an old Sears Christmas wishbook catalog. Uh, you can buy a Zeller's uniform shirt for 75 bucks, And you can even purchase an old Kmart plastic bag for 27 bucks. A plastic bag. Oh, wow. I guess people are really trying to recapture that mall feeling. I can't believe you found all of that. Oh, yeah. I went into a deep rabbit hole and it got me thinking about the heyday of the mall back when you could go to Eaton's for parachute pants. uh, But then on your way out, you could stop at HMV to buy the newest Paula Abdul cassette. uh, And then you could go to the It store and pick up a prescription for fart pills. I'm I'm sorry. What is the It store? What is... Okay. The store has prescription. What? What is this? Okay, Leah. The It Store was a wondrous place. Um, (laughs) It was a novelty shop that sold joke gifts. So you could get a pen where, you know, if you turned it upside down, a lady's top would magically fall off. Um, Or there was this little figurine um, when you pushed the this button, he would moon you. (laughs) And then, of course, you know, there was the section with joke medication 
including fart pills, which as okay. as a kid I found endlessly hilarious. As a kid, you're still you're still <laughs> laughing at this. So Okay, it seems true. like you still find this endlessly funny. Absolutely. And I looked around online for some info on the id store, but there really isn't much out there. So listeners, if you have any info on the id store, I want to hear about it. You know what? It, as you're sending that info, people, please send me your info on whatever happened to Mama Muffins. Remember that place? <laughs> I miss that place. I used to love as a kid, those bright green mint muffins. I don't want one of those muffins now as an adult, but I do want to see that weird sign again with all those, remember all the M- mm-hmm. M's mm-hmm. on it? Oh yeah. Those signs have mostly disappeared though. Yeah. And I like, I always feel like you do see like, you see like the, um, it's almost like the, like the, you know, the people who died during the volcano eruption in Pompeii. <laughs> like you can kind of see like the outline of the, the like, but but there's but it's gone it's just like the shadow of what once was and you know what the truth is the reason it's gone is because they were lead chemically muffins yeah, that were I not know. good it was you were eating a soylent green muffin <laughs> <laughs> totally it's a it's a mystery how we're we're all alive after yeah, those well there goes muffins. there goes our sponsorship for the last <laughs> muffins <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So in the 90s, stores like Kmart, Sears, Eaton's had started to close more and more, and the mall headed into further decline. And there seems to have been a brief uptick in mall activity in the early 2000s. But, you know, then we have things like online shopping coming along. And then, of course, the pandemic, which was particularly devastating. You know, but that's not to say that new malls aren't being built. They still are just not as many. And these new malls, they still they still struggle sometimes. As the years marched on, many malls, you know, they're beginning to look more and more empty, the malls of our youth. Um, and the heyday of the 80s mall seems like a distant memory. So what now? You know, what to do with these spaces? The sign reads Herongate Village, and to some, that's what the Herongate Mall is, a community, but it's about to be redeveloped. I'm a little sad because I live down the street, and when I come down here, I come and browse with the mall, go and sit in, uh, with people and have coffee, and that, so it's like a sociable thing. The mall had been losing tenants and shoppers for years. It's certainly not like it was uh couple of years ago. I mean, I've been here 17 years and I've never seen them all look like this. Modernizing the site might fix that. The new plan is to build units for large retailers on parts of what is now a parking lot. The mall itself would be torn down. Food Basics is one of few stores that will remain throughout the redevelopment. The patrons fear they will lose more than just familiar shopkeepers. Just the community feel of it. I think it's uh, always been a, a meeting place for the community and the people in the community. That's a clip from CBC Ottawa on Heron Mall from 2012. It's a story that seems familiar. More and more malls in Canada have closed or changed to more of a big box layout. And I wanted to talk to someone who has thought a lot about malls as community spaces. So my name is Deborah Cowan, and I'm a settler on Treaty 13 territory in Toronto or Toronto. And I'm a professor of geography in the Department of Geography and Planning at the University of Toronto. 
You know, when I started Googling around for some sources on dead malls and the history of malls in Canada, I, I really couldn't find anything. And and then I came across this paper by Deborah and Vanessa Parlat, and we will link to it on our website in case you want to take a read. I reached out to Deborah to understand what these spaces mean to the communities that use them, and she really challenged my notion of the term dead or dying malls. A dying mall or a dead mall is a mall that has kind of lost not necessarily its social life, but it's it's kind of economic engine. And so we tend to describe dying malls as malls that are sort of usually losing their anchor stores or that are declining in terms of their economic profitability. But in reality, um, malls that are defined as dying or dead malls are often some of the most vibrant spaces I've seen in North American urban life. And how do you mean? How are they vibrant? Well, um, a lot of the dying malls that I've had the opportunity to visit are filled with people doing really, really neat things. Um, so when we can, you know, we think about like the climate, um, especially in winters, long, cold winters, and in communities where there are very few indoor public spaces, malls often become like these vibrant social worlds. Um, for starting sometimes very early in the morning, you have people using mall spaces for calisthenics and Tai Chi and various kinds of like just walking even, you know, when the roads are icy or full of snow or impassable. Um, You often have people using the food courts to spend hours and hours with their friends or with their kids. You have people pushing strollers, um, people with um, other kinds of mobility challenges, uh, taking advantages of the smooth surfaces to move around. Um, And you have washrooms. Um, themselves increasingly a rare commodity (laughs) in urban spaces, at least public washrooms are, um, you know, really sometimes very difficult to find. And yet so many people need access to spaces for hygiene. Right. So just because they aren't doing well in sort of the traditional consumerism sense, it doesn't mean that they're they're dead. You know, there's seems to be a lot of other stuff going on. Mm-hmm, exactly. It just means that, you know, they are changing and being used in different ways, often by vulnerable populations. And in all reality, more wholesome ways. For sure. Like, I had some questions for Deborah about how emotion is linked to these spaces. It, place is so important. And this is part, part of why I think, you know, that the kind of challenge we started with thinking about the different ways that people use spaces, right? We... People are so defined by their environments and we get so vested in those places and we use them for so many different things, you know, our memory, family, kin, um, dwelling, um, you know, our just daily routines and sense of self and sense of the world is so tied to place. Uh, And those places are defined by how we use them, but they're also not entirely controlled by that. All the things that we need to do, all the ways that we attach, we identify, we come to love and care for places and relate to them, um, you know, that we need places for. And I think, you know, malls are one amazing example of this. Deborah spent a lot of time at one particular mall for her research, Morningside Mall in Scarborough. It was built in the 70s and it was an important part of the community. Um, And in the 1990s, the late 1990s, Walmart um, purchased the what had been the, the big anchor store, which was a Wolco. And one of the things that Walmart um, does when they uh, have a kind of project of literally mall killing is to t- 
take over an anchor store and then close the internal circulatory system. So they literally close off the doors that attach their store to the mall. And that might seem like a small or subtle gesture, but if you think about how important movement is um, in the context of a mall and in, in terms of the circulation of shoppers, um, it's not a small act at all. It's a very deliberate act. They slowly started to draw the consumption and the consumer energy into the store instead of into the mall. We started to see the you know increasingly like empty stalls in the mall, and and then in two thousand and one, um, the East Scarborough storefront they took over a kind of a space that was no longer rented and they were providing everything from like um, job search services to English language learning courses to, you know, youth um, after school programs and so forth. Um, they located them all in 2001, 2003, the Walmart closes. And again, this is a kind of, um, this has now been kind of documented as a, a Walmart strategy. They closed and they opened down the road. Okay. So Walmart isn't just going into a mall and taking all the customers away from other stores it actually shuts down the mall and takes everything with it when it leaves. So it's a mall parasite. Yeah, and Deborah says Morningside Mall wasn't just about the stores. This was a mall where literally you'd go into the food court and there'd be like a group of older men playing cards all day. There'd be people with strollers and their kids spending hours to get out of the cold. There'd be, you know, um, people walking the halls uh, for exercise. The whole mall had become kind of de facto a community social space. Um, and the mall management was actually quite supportive of this. They saw this as, uh, you know, some of their some of their role in the community. Um, but the mall was losing business and so um, decided that they would have to close and, and sell. And so something that we saw, um, which I have not seen in very many places and certainly put the mall on my own radar, was literally protests in a march from residents um, demanding the protection of their community space. And that's how they framed it. They were talking about the mall, but they didn't talk about it as a mall. They talked about it as community space. Hearing Deborah talk about activism in these spaces made me think about the protests that happened around Idle No More, the ones that happened in malls. It made me think about the Black Lives Matter protests that happened in malls in the U.S., I think for a lot of people, it's it's easy to look at malls with a sort of disdain, a sort of bleak cynicism. But these spaces are important and continue to be. We could point to so many malls across the country that people have strong feelings and memories about. The Kingsgate in Vancouver. Station Mall in Sault Ste. Marie. Cavendish Mall in Montreal, a place where many in the Jewish community still gather. Yvette Nolan, our script editor, told me about places like Confederation Mall in Saskatoon, a place that is used by indie arts companies as rehearsal spaces. I spoke to an Indigenous colleague here at CBC, and he told me about a mall in Winnipeg, Portage Place, where you can go and hear people speaking in First Nations languages. I think it might be time we started rethinking these quote-unquote dead malls, because many of them seem anything other than dead. And I think they deserve our respect and our gratitude. And more m -m muffins. And so many m -m -m more muffins. <laughs> you can leave that part out. <laughs> it like, really takes away from the beautiful ending. No, I love it. No, I love it. <laughs> Thank you. 
The Secret Life of Canada is written and hosted by me, Phelan Johnson. And me, Leah Simone Bowen. Our producer is Eunice Kim. Sound designed by Graham McDonald. Our script editor is Yvette Nolan. Research assistance by Andrea Eidinger and CBC Archives. Roshni Nair is our digital producer, and our executive producers are Cecil Fernandez and Chris Oak. Harv Narani is the director of CBC Podcasts. Our logo is by Badawogan Illustration and Design. You can find us on socials, and our email is secretlifeofcanada at cbc.ca. Rate and review us wherever you listen. It really helps other people find the show. Thanks for exploring Canada's hidden history with us. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.